0: Empire Lines uncovers the unexpected, often two-way flows of empires through art. Interdisciplinary thinkers use individual artworks as artefacts of imperial exchange, revealing the how and why of the monolith empire. In this episode Art critic Laura Gascoigne portrays the connections between British colonial and cultural opportunism through George Chinnery's 1840s self-portrait of the artist in Macau. Judged purely on appearances, the prize for the least prepossessing subject of a portrait in the collection of the National Portrait Gallery would probably go to George Chinnery, Described by one of his sitters, Harriet Lowe, as one of the ugliest men in existence, Chinnery was certainly no oil painting. But in his 1844 self-portrait, the confident posture, with the lower lip thrust out and one leg jauntily crossed over the other, distracts from the jowls and the ill-concealed porch. And the confrontational look over the tops of his spectacles suggests a forceful personality. As Harriet Lowe confirms, he was a droll genius, fun to be with. Chinnery was 70 when he painted this self-portrait and he had spent almost his entire career away from England. The painting shows him seated in his studio, brush and palette in hand, in front of a view of an overgrown building on the easel with a waterfront scene on the wall behind. It looks as if he's been interrupted at work. But in fact, the painting on the easel is of a Bengali tomb in India, a country he had left 20 years earlier. And the waterfront is the Praia Grande in Macau, where he spent the last 27 years of his life. Chinnery's self-portrait is a window onto the opportunities colonial life offered artists and those of other professions who couldn't make it in Britain at the same time it highlights the conflict between his exotic landscape views and portraits and the less picturesque economic reality beneath the surface born in london in 1774 chinnery trained at the royal academy schools with jmw turner but after finding the portrait market too competitive he left for dublin ireland in his early 20s there too however portrait commissions were not as plentiful as he had imagined, and he was hopeless with money. His debts piled up, and in what would become a career pattern, he solved his financial problems by running away. To an underemployed early nineteenth-century portraitist, India probably seemed an El Dorado. The painters John Smart and Johann Sophony had returned from stints on the subcontinent with enhanced reputations and bank balances and Chinnery's family already had connections in the East India Company. His father William was an old India hand, and his brother John was then in the company's civil service. But his first application for permission to travel was rejected. The company had apparently caught wind of his money troubles. His second was accepted, and he sailed for Madras in 1802 at the age of 28, leaving his Irish wife with two babies. His daughter Matilda would be 17 before she rejoined him in Calcutta in 1817, followed a year later by his wife, and in 1822 by his son John, who died soon after of a fever at the age of 20. During their absences, Chinnery had fathered twin sons, Edward and Henry, with an Indian mother. He himself would never go home. Chinnery arrived in Madras ten years after victory in the Third Mysore War Made the East India Company the de facto ruler of southeastern India. He picked up some commissions for portraits of British officials and their wives and children. The most striking features the mixed-race Kirkpatrick children in Indian dress. But pickings were leaner than he had hoped in Madras, where once again he found himself in competition with established artists. His luck changed when, in 1807, He won a commission to paint the recently appointed Chief Justice of the Supreme Court of Bengal, Sir Henry Russell, for Calcutta's New Town Hall. A portrait painter has to follow the money, and as the centre of the East India Company's opium trade with China and the capital of British India, Calcutta offered richer pickings than madras. In this small pond, Chinnery could be a big fish and charge top whack for his services. But he was hopelessly extravagant, and earnings of around five thousand a year did not put a stop to his financial woes. Fortunately, he made up in social skills what he lacked in financial probity. A wit, raconteur, and enthusiastic performer in amateur dramatics, often in drag, he made himself a fixture on the social scene. His reputation as a renegade added to his appeal. He made a running gag of his attempts to escape his wife the ugliest woman I ever saw in my life. It made a funnier story than escaping his creditors, which he would soon be compelled to do again. In the early 1820s, his Anglo-Indian friends clubbed together to raise 20,000 rupees advance on future commissions to get him out of a hole. It was no use. In 1825, he did another bunk, boarding a company ship for Macau. As Chinri followed the money, so the money followed the opium. Macau was a coastal retreat for Western merchants, trading with China from Canton, a hundred miles inland, and the home base for those with wives. Western women were not allowed in Canton, a godsend, Chinnery liked to joke, as it kept his wife away. Chinnery was a reluctant portraitist. His first love was landscape. In India, he had painted watercolours of sailors launching Masula boats and palanquin bearers taking a break. There was money to be made from topographical prints of historic Indian monuments, like those engraved by the Daniel brothers. But the series of prints of Mughal buildings in Dakar that Chinnery planned came to nothing. He was less interested in architecture than local colour. With its Portuguese heritage of crumbling Baroque churches and colonial villas, Macau's atmosphere of decaying grandeur suited Chinnery's tastes. Its natural tendency was towards the picturesque, a style his contemporary Turner would soon consign to history with modern landscapes like rain, steam and speed. But modernity had not reached this East Asian backwater stuck in the past, with an economy dependent not on industry but on trade, most profitably in smuggled opium a commercial reality veiled by the lazy charm of Chinry's landscapes. In the 18th century, the Chinese had leased a strip of frontage along the Canton River for Western traders to build factories or hongs. Paintings by Chinnery show the strip lined with hongs of different nations, each flying its national flag. The China trade was now dominated by Britain and America. By Chinry's time, the grip of the East India Company on the China coast was loosening. Not long after his arrival, the Chinese owners of the British Hong leased it to the new partnership of Jardine Matheson, who sublet to other traders. Chinnery knew William Jardin from Calcutta, and he and his partner James Matheson would become firm friends. In 1841, they would raise 16,000 rupees of credit to help him pay off his Indian debts. His status as Jardin Matheson's official painter would bring him portrait commissions from across Canton's international community. After the Chinese ceded Hong Kong to the British in 1842, following their defeat in the First Opium War, the centre of trading operations moved from Canton and Macau became even more of a backwater. Chinnery visited Hong Kong in 1846, but the six months he spent there were unproductive. He blamed ill health, though one suspects that the new developments of this fast-growing boomtown were not sufficiently picturesque for his tastes. He was more attracted to the multicultural street life of Macau. Early each morning, he would have himself carried around the streets in a sedan chair in search of vignettes of local life, making sketches of barbers, blacksmiths, food vendors, gamblers and fortune tellers to enliven his landscapes. landscapes were not as profitable as portraits, which remained his bread and butter. His sitters on the China coast were the cosmopolitan captains of opium clippers and international members of the Western, Parsi and Chinese trading community. They included Haukwa, legendary leader of the Chinese merchants, whose fame was celebrated in a waxwork at Madame Tussauds. Nearly all Chinnery's portrait subjects were male. Harriet Lowe, who spent four years in Macau as a companion for an American merchant's wife, was a rare female exception. Chinnery had sent no portraits to Royal Academy exhibitions from India, but he began sending them again from Macau, usually with exotic subjects. The first two featured Haukwa and the Protestant missionary Dr. Robert Morrison, translating the Bible with the help of two Chinese scribes. Another exotic theme was the Tanker Boatwomen, who ran Macau's ship-to-shore water taxi service. Chinnery produced a popular series of paintings of pretty Sino-Portuguese models in tanker dress. Having become something of a tourist attraction himself, he also did a line in small self-portraits for visitors to take home as souvenirs. In one self-portrait drawing made in India, he is smoking a hookah. But what did he put in it? Chinnery didn't drink. If he did smoke opium, it may have contributed to his carelessness with money, though that was already in evidence in Ireland. Opium smoking was socially acceptable in the circles in which he moved in India and Canton. In a group portrait of three friends chilling on the veranda of British trading house Denton Co in Canton, a plume of smoke rises from the red hot bowl of a pipe on a side table. From their relaxed attitudes, The trio could be mistaken for the types of East India Company slackers who, Chinnery joked, spent six months in Macau having nothing to do and the other six months in Canton doing nothing. But the men in his picture, the Frenchman J.A. Durand, the American William Hunter and the Englishman William Hall, were movers and shakers in the opium trade. Durand had been captain of a ship that carried cotton and opium from India to China. Hunter was a partner in Russell & Co, America's leading dealer in opium, and Hall had come to Macau in 1840 as commander of the steam-powered warship Nemesis, the ship that played a crucial role in the British victory over the Chinese in 1842, the year Chinnery painted this picture. For anyone who missed the connection, Chinnery added an obvious clue. A large red poppy in an urn on the veranda, illuminated by the evening sun. There's no hooker on the side table in Chinnery's 1844 self portrait, just the tools of his trade, a bottle of Turps and a painting knife. This was the final painting he would send to the RA, and its confrontational pose carries a message. In his colonial outposts, Chinnery had been able to sustain the belief that he was an artistic contender. There are not six at home, he boasted, who I would stand in awe of. Expatriate communities out of touch with the latest artistic developments at home were happy to confirm him in this opinion. But his style of portraiture was old-fashioned and his landscapes compared with Turner's were passé. He was a generation behind the times and in England he might have been imprisoned for debt. The fringes of empire to which Chinnery was drawn favoured the adventurer and the reject. William Hunter would later describe Macao in a memoir as the paradise for debtors. One of them, the British merchant Thomas Beale, who was sketched by Chinry, committed suicide. He may have had a sense of shame the artist lacked. The American travel writer Osmond Tiffany, in his 1849 book The Canton Chinese, recorded an extremely low opinion of the British inhabitants of Hong Kong. Scapegoats and scoundrels from the purlieus of London, creatures that only miss Botany Bay by good fortune, were to be found in the town of Victoria lording it over the natives, many of whom were more respectable and respected than they had ever been or ever would be. A scoundrel he may have been, but Chinnery could not be accused of lording it. His perspective on empire seen from the ground was very different from Turner's with its parallels with ancient Rome, and his interest in native life was genuine. At the height of his success, he took on Chinese apprentices who learned to paint his favoured subjects in his trademark style, laying the foundations of a Chinnery school. The best of them, Lam Kua, opened a studio in Canton and would go on to exhibit paintings of Chinese subjects in the Western style at the Royal Academy. The view of William Princep, one of Chinry's creditors, that if he had been honest he might in Europe have made a great name for himself, was flattering. In fact, dishonesty was the making of Chinnery. He owed his success as an unexceptional portraitist to the need of expatriate communities in far-flung places to see their images reflected in a reassuringly familiar Western mirror. There was no trace in his paintings of the Oriental influence that would take European art by storm a generation later. Empire Lines is produced by Jelena Sofranievich. For more episodes, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.